This is Char. This is Barb. And this is Plug, Plug Your ears. ears, where I sit back, annoy Barb, chat about anything oh I want, <laughs> and start over seven bajillion times. <laughs> we're I, open, we're honest, and I'm going to beat the shit out of her in a minute. Best friends so, was last week, and last week you said you got lucky with me. Well, I did. I got lucky because I can beat the shit out of you. Um, <laughs> I will fight back. Okay. I don't. I'm not a fighter either. I'm a lover. Well, see now. So, drink your beer. <laughs> I was about to go, I'm a fighter. Drink your wine. I know, and you got, you got guns. I, I got some guns. But as she means arms. <laughs> uh, yeah, welcome to the gun show. <laughs> All right, so what did we decide to go with this week, Barbara Jean? Oh, look, look how you take control. Shh, damn it! Zip, zip it! All right, this is my episode, bitches, bitchachos. <laughs> so this week we decided to go with a little bit of murder. Shocking! But we're going to, you know, we had our kids in here a couple weeks ago. And so we're going to talk about some school murders, disasters, massacres, shootings, what have you. Okay. And guess what, Char? I get to go first. something you don't get to hear, see, yada yada very often. We're going to start with the backstory of the school because Barbara Jean likes backstories. So this was the University of Texas, which was founded in 1883 with the Longhorns being their mascot. As I throw up the horns and I don't care about the Longhorns. They are in the Pac-12, not the Big Ten, but the Pac-12. And they have won four national football championships. And, uh, and I just want y'all to know, she's got some serious hand gesturing going on. Right <laughs> she threw the horns. Then she, she gave the me four with her hands because I didn't know what four was. <laughs> and six baseball championships, but no basketball. She can't do six because she's holding her notes. <laughs> so the campus spreads out by 423 and a half acres has 14 museums, 17 libraries, and holds only one of 21 remaining Gutenberg Bibles, which I personally thought was pretty cool. Oh, yeah. So if you don't know what a Gutenberg Bible is, it was the earliest major book printed on a machine that had movable, like the metal letters. Oh, gotcha. So it was the first, one of the first earliest mass produced with movable type, um, basically meaning the printing press. Apparently, it was supposedly beautiful, had like gold inlays in it. It is also the most valuable book ever printed. So it is worth like 25 to 35 million dollars. Right? And I always thought that the word of the God, uh, the word of God was free. I'm like, nope, it's 25 million. Not in Texas. Right? <laughs> so the other thing I thought was really cool about this school is they have tunnels underground. These tunnels link all of the buildings on campus. There's six miles of underground Dude, tunnels. Do the students get to use them? So, oh. no. Sadly, it is not open to public. It's only used for facility maintenance. Um, but these tunnels could have come in really handy on August 1st of 1966. Just be 
before I was born. Only mm -hmm. August. <laughs> she's counting on her fingers. Now she's got the major hand gestures. Oh, wait. August. <laughs> you can do it, Barb. Just before I was conceived. Oh. I was counting nine months. Well, maybe they were from June 67. Maybe they were counting their blessings from living through a massacre. So this happened August 1st, 1966, at around noon from the clock tower on campus. Oh, the famous clock tower. Yep. And they sh the shooter was shooting at random for over 90 minutes, like sniper style. Oh, I totally remember this. This attack was the deadliest mass shooting by a lone gunman in U.S. history until it was surpassed 18 years later at San Isidro Mc McDonald's Massacre. So part of what amazed me is that this is actually recent enough that there's television coverage, yet it feels old enough that it feels like forever and a day ago. Um, a day ago? A day ago. <laughs> but these people are, well, these people that remember this are still alive. So I was like, this is really intriguing. Um, so naturally, what do I do? I go to YouTube, and I watch two fucking hours, well, probably more than two hours, and even Barbara Walters covered this stuff. Yeah, I was like, oh my gosh, she's so young. So one of the things that is the most interesting part of this particular school shooting is that most school shootings don't have video coverage on it because the school shootings happen inside schools, inside classrooms, and it's really quick, in, out, job's done. Um, bada bing, bada boom. Right. So this one, with it being from the clock tower, and this guy was sniper-style picking people off, mm -hmm. so they actually had time to get a news crew in there. They were videoing it. You can hear the gunshots. You can hear the people screaming. Um, so it thoroughly intrigued me that okay, you could wait, watch. Wait. Time out. So they've had time to get a news crew in there. Why are there still people about? So I'm going to kind of, <laughs> sort of, in a way, answer that. Okay, we'll get um, to that. Yeah. So I had a really hard time trying to decipher which order I'm going to go with in this I, story. I, I often do that myself. Yeah. Like, you, where do I start? Do I start with this? But then when I start with this, you know what's going to happen here. So especially since this is, this is a horrible, horrible story. So I decided I'm just going to start right at noon right at the clock tower. Um, I am probably going to skip around like I'm Marty McFly in the DeLorean. Never mind. I was about to go, Barb, when I just said that, I had to stop myself from saying Mandalorian. <laughs> Stupid Star Wars. So at 11.48 a.m. I had no idea even what that was a reference to. The Mandalorian? Oh. We're friends. I know. We're friends. We're friends. I'm a Star Wars she doesn't know about the so, <laughs> <laughs> so at 11.48 a.m., wow, that's hard, the first shot rang out. Over the next 96 minutes, 14 people, including one unborn child, mm. and were killed, and 31 were injured. So the first victim was Claire Wilson, who was pregnant with a baby boy, she was shot in the womb, specifically, ah. the experts believe. They believe that they, he did it to kill the baby. So she and her boyfriend were leaving the student union um, when she just collapsed. 
Her boyfriend, which was Thomas Eckman, went to help her, and he was shot in the oh. chest and died instantly. He's a bastard. Now, here's a cool thing about Claire. There was a girl named Rita Star Pattern. Oh, great name. Right? Not only is it the most amazing name, but Rita lived up to the amazement of this name. I have a sister named Rita. Oh, yeah? I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to act surprised. I just couldn't. Uh, <laughs> you, you did very well for 2.5 milliseconds. <laughs> Pretend I don't know. Let it be a surprise. Really? Um, so, <laughs> let's get back to Rita's star pattern. Because your Rita doesn't have a star pattern. So, How do you know? Rita actually ran out to Claire, who was bleeding on the cement, and laid next to her while the shooter was still shooting all around them for over an hour to keep Claire conscious. Aww. Yes. So this happened until two guys, who, sorry, I also believe they deserve a shout-out, who were James Love and John Fox, they ran... What great names I they know. have in Texas in 1966. What the crap? Yep, Rita Star I mean, have a name Love. like James Love or... Rita Star Pattern. What's the Fox dude? John Fox. John Fox. What the fuck? So James Love and John oh, Fox do. ran out while he's still shooting, got Claire, and carried her to safety. Um, they then went back out there and recovered her boyfriend's body. Wow. So Claire... And she was still conscious, breathing, She alive. was. She was in the hospital for three months. The baby didn't make it, oh. but she did survive. Oh, wow. Um... Next, Robert Boyer. Yeah, but her womb was fucked up. Right. <laughs> Should have Googled if she ever had kids. Wonder if she could. Um, Robert Boyer, a mathematician, was then the third person shot at, from the tower. He was struck in the lower back. He was followed by Devereaux Huffman, who was shot in the arm, but, found, but fell to the ground and faked that he was dead. Um, he survived. Another to be named um, was Charlotte Derishori, she tried to run and help them, um, but she was shot at and ended up having to hide behind a concrete flagpole for an hour and a half, wow. like in the middle of this whole student year. Hell yeah. Life or death, baby. Right? David Matson, Ronald Elkey, and Tom Herman were just trying to go to lunch when a bullet took out part of Matson's wrist, Ooh, and yeah. Elkey was struck in the arm by the shrapnel. Oh. Um, then then he got a bullet in the leg. Homer Kelly then tried to help, and he got shot in the leg too. Thomas Ashton was shot in the chest on his Which way. Which leads me to wonder: Did he mean that? Because if he can shoot a woman in the womb, I think by this time his stereo was setting in, so people were. I don't. Oh, maybe they it's were. harder to if they're just walking in. If she was the first shot, one, it was. Calmness. It was strategic and calm. Holy crap! This line's almost gone. Oh yeah. So Thomas Ashton was shot in the wick on the chest on his way to meet the a couple of other the other boys that the Matson, Elkie, and Herman. He was meeting them for lunch. Nancy Harvey was a student that was leaving the tower for lunch with her friend Ellen. They heard shots, ran back in. Here's the kicker. Then a guard said it was safe to leave. Oh, and ta-da! Nancy got hit in the hip from and she wasn't even a hundred yards out. Ellen was hit in the left leg by the same shot. Wow. Yep. Then two high school students got hit next. Alex Hernandez and Karen Griffith. 
Alex was shot in the leg while he was delight delivering newspapers on his bicycle route. When you're delivering papers was a dangerous <laughs> job. I'll get you, my Bridgie. Then Karen Griffith was hit in the shoulder, and that pierced her lung. Oh. She died seven days later. Wow. Thomas Carr goes to help the kids and gets shot in the spine. He dies an hour yeah, later. Yeah, spine's not a good thing to pierce uh, you with. That's not okay. David Gundy was shot in his upper Gumby. left arm. Gundy, not Gumby. Oh, damn not it. the green guy. Gundy. Gundy. See, Gumby could have made it. <laughs> right? He just bends and misses it like the Matrix. So David Gundy was shot in his upper mm. left arm and in his abdomen, which then severed his small intestine. Ooh. Brenda and Adrian Linfield, who got married nine days prior to this, were leaving the tower when Brenda got shot in the hip. And Adrian got shot in the back as he leaned over to help her. Uh, good protecting, sir. She married a good one. Then an armored car came and rescued the newlyweds and David Gundy. I feel like an armored car. So here's an interesting tidbit. This David Gundy, the one that got shot in the abdomen and severed uh -huh. his in intestines, he went into surgery to have it repaired to find out that he only had one functioning kidney. This poor guy was in pain for the rest of his life. Mm. He was still... Before the shooting, he only had one functioning correct. kidney, but didn't know. Correct. So he was still ruled a homicide years later right. um, because he died one week after he stopped There's dialysis. There's some similarities in our story, and I'll get to that. Huh. So next was Claudia Rutt and her boyfriend, Paul Suntag. They had Paul just Rudd? Claudia Rutt. <laughs> You're trying to screw me up tonight, Barbie. English is hard enough as it is. So, <laughs> Claudia Rutt and her boyfriend, Paul Suntag, had just run into Carla Sue Wheeler, which is a friend of theirs, when they heard the shots. Oh, Carla Sue. <laughs> like, it's too... I love people with double names. That's so, why you always call me Barbara Jean. <laughs> my cousin is Kelly Joe. I've got Brandy Kay, Sherry Lynn, my sister's Andrea Lynn. I, I do that all the time. Um, so they ended up taking refuge behind a construction barricade when Paul abruptly stood up and Whitman shot him in the mouth, <gasps> killing him instantly. In the mouth? Uh-huh. So this dude Shoot was your sniper. dirty whore mouth, he said. This dude was sniper style. Claudia tried to reach Paul. Well, see, that's why I'm wondering about all the, like, oh, shots Claudia. in the hip and the leg and the arm. We're still going, though. Claudia tried to reach Paul as Carla Sue attempted to restrain her. And a shot passed through Carla Sue's left hand, struck Claudia in the chest. Wow. Now, interesting bit about this is Paul's grandfather was a KB KTBC news director, Paul oh. Bolton. He learned of his grandson's death as the names of the victims were recited oh, on air damn. on his channel that day. That's sad. Harsh. Yeah. So Roy Schmidt took cover with others behind his car, some 500 500 yards from the tower, but after 30 minutes, stood up and believed that they were out of range and was immediately shot in the abdomen. He was the farthest fatality from the tower. Now, Roy Schmidt, I already said that, shut up, Barb. At 12.08 p.m., Billy Paul Speed, again, awesome name, Billy Paul. So, Billy Paul Speed was with another officer and others behind decorative balusters on the South Mall when he was shot through a gap in masonry. 
Wow. He died soon after at the hospital. At about noon, Harry Walchuk was leaving a magazine store when he was shot in the chest. Billy Wilson was shot in the chest on Guadalupe Street. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. Snowden. They couldn't get to this building? Nobody was in the bell tower? No. Snowden, believing himself out of range, was struck in the shoulder while standing in the barbershop doorway at over 500 yards. He was the furthest victim from from the tower. Um, Sandra Wilson, who was shot in the chest, Abdullah Kashab was an exchange student from Iraq, and Janet Paulos was his fiance, and they were shot. Lana Phillips believes she was out of range, but she was shot in the shoulder. Oscar Roivella and Irma Garcia, which was his girlfriend, were shot. Um, Jack Stevens and Jack Pennington drove them both to safety, though. So then a shot struck Avalino Esparza's left arm near the shoulder, shattering that shoulder, and his brother and his uncle drug him to safety. Robert Hurd was a press reporter and a, a Marine, a veteran Marine. He was shot in the arm. John Scott Allen was looking at the tower through a window of the student union when a bullet struck the window, followed wow. by a second shot that severed the artery in his right forearm. Ugh. Yeah, like, what's the likelihood of getting hit twice? Yeah, How do you shoot through the window and shoot through the hole in the window and hit an artery? Like, that's crazy. Um, now, Morris Homan, I said help was using oh, his business's ambulance to take victims to the hospital when he was shot in the right leg. Wow. Um, he later recalled, I laid there for about 40 to 45 minutes listening to two construction workers about argue about who was going to expose themselves to recover me. Oh. Can you imagine hearing that? I'd be like, motherfuckers, get your ass out here. Right. And I can't imagine being there, seeing him bleeding and being like, no, Barb, I'm not sure I want to go out there. We no, you both, go. No, you go. We both know me well enough that I'd be like, Barb, get behind the goddamn barrier. I will be back No, in I'd be like, minutes. you grab his left arm, I'll grab his right arm. <laughs> it, I mean, we wouldn't contemplate. Yeah, how could you even hesitate? I, no. I don't know. I guess and you never know until you're in that more? situation. And my moral compass doesn't necessarily point directly north. Yeah, me neither. But, and I am the first person to tell you I hate humans. You know what the thing is? But I'm going to run out there and get that motherfucker. My compassion moral compass is good. Not mine. It's it's my moral, like, moral compass. (laughs) I just, I'm the first one to say I hate humans. And I still wouldn't sit and argue over whether or not to save that man. Right. If it's me or him, I'm going. Yeah, but you, I, I can't even imagine that you would think about it. It would, to me, it would be like, holy crap, I, I let's go. Get that guy. Yeah. I mean, it would just be involuntary. Yep. So, a guy named F.L. Foster, that's it, and Robert Freed were wounded in crossfire. Um, Della and Marina Martinez, who were visiting from Mexico, were both wounded by bullet fragments. Dolores Ortega suffered a cut in the back of her head from flying glass or a dropped hip. They're not sure. Hmm. Um, so how, you not, how are you not sure? I, that's what I'm wondering. Um, so C.A. Stewart was not shot, but he was injured in the commotion. Okay. So now I got all the victims taken care of. That's crazy. Because I believe that those victims deserve to be first. The heroes of the story deserve to be first. I do have a couple other heroes, but they're going to have their little section. So now we're going to go on to the shooter. The shooter was a guy named Charles Joseph Whitman. 
students. <laughs> he was born June twenty first or June twenty fourth, nineteen forty one. He was the oldest of three boys and described his family life as abusive. Shocker. That's odd. His father was an admitted authoritarian who provided for his family but demanded near perfection from every one of those boys. He was also known to physically and emotionally abuse his wife and kids. Charles. That never happens with murderers. Right. So Charles, he, because you know me, Barb, and I'm kind of obsessed lately with this, and I don't know why, because I don't give a fuck. But he was super smart. So at the age of six, he revealed an IQ of 139. So that's that's 15 points higher than my smart ass. That's pretty typical, like, super high IQ, no social skills. Super high or super low. It's one of the end, right. like, one of the other opposite ends of the spectrum, but you're on the spectrum at the high or low side if you're going right. to... Yeah. So, um... His dad was a firearms collector and a firearms enthusiast, shocker, who taught each of his young sons to shoot, clean, and maintain weapons. He regularly took them on hunting trips, and Charles became an avid hunter and an accomplished marksman. Which isn't to say that's why he went all rogue and started killing people, because I'm all for guns. Oh, right, I'm pro-gun. Now, his dad did say of him... Charlie could plug the eye out of a squirrel by the time uh, he was 16. I'm still confused about the so many legs and arms and hips I'm being telling you, I had to pure chaos because we'll keep going. He was super popular in high school. Well, they say moderately. To me, that's pretty popular. Right? I had like 12 <laughs> friends and we were the weird kids. Well, I was in a high school of like, like my class was, I had a class of 80 80? Oh, I had a class of 790-something. So, like, I knew and got along with everybody. With all 80 yeah. of them? Yeah. No, I was friends with the hippies and the band geeks and the nerds and that kind of stuff. So, he was pretty popular in high school, I guess. Then, what do you think he did, Barb? Um, shot himself? He joined the Marines. Oh. So. <laughs> what? Wait. Yeah. Cause remember, oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. So... Now, I don't want to talk too much about him because, well, he doesn't deserve it. So, like, if we had an asshole of the week, <laughs> I think he'd be the asshole of the week. I don't know. I got you. Yeah. I got to. So, he was in the Marines for about 18 months no, before. I, I win, I think, on the asshole <laughs> We'll of the see. Week. I'll let you. We, we don't have it anymore. Damn clapper's gone. So, he was in the Marine for about 18 months before he was able to, before he started at UT. He started UT in 1961 for mechanical engineering. Because, uh, you know, he's smart. So, I personally <coughs> like to say that mechanical is only second to electrical engineering for smarts. I get to but no, he's an electrician, not no, an electrical. He went to school oh, for engineering. your story guy. <laughs> Oh, no, no, no. He's not my guy. So, um, in February of 1962, 20-year-old Whitman met Kathleen Frances Lesnar, who was an education major. She was two years younger than him. On August 17th of 1962, they were married. So, we're looking at, like, five months later, six months later they were married. Damn. I know. Way to get quick. 
So um, the day didn't mess around. No. So the day before these shootings, Whitman bought a pair of binoculars and a knife from a hardware store. Went and bought spam because this fucker was in it for the long haul from a Seven Eleven. He then picked his wife wife up from her summer job as a telephone operator, and then they met his mother for lunch at the Wyatt Cafeteria, which was super close to the university. Now, about 4 p.m. on July 31st, Charles and Kathy went and visited their close friends, John and Fran Morgan. They left the Morgan's apartment about 5.50 so that Kathy could get to her 6 o'clock shift. At 6.45 p.m., Whitman began typing his own suicide note, a portion of which read, I do not quite understand what it is that compels me to type this letter. Perhaps it is to leave some vague reason for the actions I have recently performed. I do not really understand myself these days. I'm supposed to be an average, reasonable, and intelligent young man. However, lately, I cannot recall when it started, I've been a victim of many unusual and irrational thoughts. These thoughts constantly recur, and it requires a tremendous mental effort to concentrate on useful and progressive tasks. In his note, he went on to request an autopsy be performed on his remains after he was dead to determine if there had been a discernible biological contributory that was causing his actions. Why didn't he just go do that to begin with right and for his continuing and increasingly intense headaches he was having headaches he also wrote that he decided to kill both his mother and his wife Mm. expressing uncertainties about his reasons he nonetheless stated he did not believe that his mother had and i quote ever enjoyed life as she was entitled to and that his wife had been as fine a wife to me as any man could ever hope to have Whitman further explained that he wanted to relieve both of his wife and his mother of the suffering of the world and save them the embarrassment of his actions. He did not mention that he had planned this attack on the university. Just after midnight on August 1st, Whitman drove to his mother's apartment. After killing his mother, he placed her body on her bed and covered it with sheets. Just how he murdered his mom, though, nobody can quite tell, but the officials believe that he actually knocked her unconscious before he stabbed her directly in the heart. Wow. He left her... That's a little bit brutal for a, I love you, but... Well, he at least rendered her unconscious. Um, He did leave a handwritten note beside her body, which read in part, to whom it may concern, (laughs) I have just taken my mother's life. I am very upset over having done it, However, I feel that there is a, if there's a heaven, she is definitely there now. I am truly sorry. Let there be no doubt in your mind that I loved this woman with all my heart. Women then returned to his home where he killed his wife by stabbing her three times in the heart as she slept. Wow. Direct to the heart is a quick kill. He Stop. then covered her body with sheets and resumed writing the typewritten note that he had started the night before. Um, but this time he was using a, a regular old ballpoint pen, which he wrote on the side of a page. Friends interrupted eight one sixty six Monday three a.m. Both dead. Whitman continued the note, still in pen. I imagine it appears that I brutally killed both my loved ones. I was only to trying to do a quick, thorough job. If my life insurance policy is valid, please pay off my debts. 
donate the rest anonymously to a mental health foundation. Maybe research can prevent further tragedies of this type. Give our dog to my in-laws. Tell them Kathy loved him very much. If you can find yourselves to grant my last last wish, please cremate me after the autopsy. He also left instructions in the house that was requesting that two rolls of camera film be developed and wrote personal notes to each of his brothers. He then wrote on an envelope labeled Thoughts for the Day, in which he stored a collection of written admonitions he added on the outside of the envelope. 11166. I never could quite make it. These thoughts are too much for me. Wow. He was very, very affected. Yes. At 5.45 a.m. on August 1st, Whitman phoned his wife's supervisor at the Bell System to explain that she was ill and unable to work that day. He then called, like five hours-ish later, he called his mom's work and told them the same thing. So at least he was good enough to call the employer so they didn't want lose their fucking jobs? Or come looking for them sooner. Oh, that's true. I didn't even think about that. I was just like, oh, well, they got a job. So later that morning, Whitman rented a hand truck cashed $250 worth of checks. Thank you, Google, that is now worth two grand. He then drove to a hardware store where he purchased a 30 caliber universal M1 carbine, two additional magazines, eight boxes of ammunition, telling the cashier that he was just gonna go hunt wild hogs. At a gun shop, he purchased four more mags, six additional boxes of ammo, and a can- For wild longhorn. Right. <laughs> and That's so bad. I'm that so was bad, sorry. but it was great. Why do I? Why did they sneak up in my head? Well, this is what I don't get too. He also got a gun cleaning solvent. Like, are you gonna stop and take the time to clean your guns just in case? Right. Safety first. Right. You don't want them jamming. Then he went to Sears and purchased a Sears Model 60 12 gauge semi-automatic shotgun before heading home. He then packed a Foot Locker. Who the fuck has a Locker. <laughs> well, he was in the Marines. In the service. Yeah. So then he packed his foot locker with a Remington 706mm bolt action hunting rifle, a 30 cal pump rifle, an M1 carbine, a 9mm Luger, a 25 caliber, uh, caliber pistol, a Smith & Wesson Holy M19, shit. 357 Magnum, the shotgun of which he had sawn off the barrel and the buttstock, as well, and he had more than 700 rounds of ammunition. So as I'm writing this, I'm literally saying, sawed off shotgun hand on the bump. So he also <laughs> packed food, coffee, vitamins, excedrin, earplugs, jugs of water, matches, lighter fluid, rope, binoculars, a machete, three knives, a transistor radio, toilet paper, a razor, a bottle of deodorant, he put khaki coveralls on over his shirt and jeans. So he was legit in this thing for the long oh, haul. He was like going he wasn't for going it. hungry. Then at eleven twenty-five, he got to the to the University of Texas, where he showed false research assistant ID and gained a parking permit permit. He then wheeled his equipment toward the main building of the university, entering the main building with his cart of this shit. He found the elevator didn't work. Um, then he talked to an employee who activated the elevator for him. Nice. And when she did that, he looked at her and said, thank you, ma'am, before repeatedly saying, you don't know how happy that makes me. Right? Like, wow. psychotic. 
here on the 27th floor, he hauled the dolly and the equipment up a flight of stairs to a hallway from which another flight led to the room skirted by the observation deck. And then he encountered the receptionist. Uh -oh. She went, it didn't say at what took place between him and this chick. It just said that later on, she mistook the sound of shots for the noise of a nearby construction site. Or she thought that people falling on the ground were part of a theater group or anti-war protest. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Not um, the brightest bulb. What'd you say? Not the brightest bulb. No, apparently not. Um, so four minutes after he began shooting at the tower, a history professor was the first to telephone the police. This was at 11.52 a.m. Patrolman Billy Speed was, which Billy Speed was one of the victims. We already said his name. He was one of the first officers to arrive. He took refuge with another cop behind a column stone wall. Whitman shot through that six-inch space between the columns and killed Speed. Wow. Done. That's crazy. Right. Now, there was a guy named Officer Houston McCoy. So he lived in Texas and was still named Houston. That's another cool name. Yeah. Houston McCoy. I don't know. Kayla's dad wanted her to be Savannah, and I'm like, I can't name her after a place I was born. I can't imagine living in Austin, Texas, and being named Houston. I do like the name Savannah, though. Yeah, not for Kayla. So, Houston McCoy, he had heard of the shooting on his radio. As he looked for a way into the tower, a student offered to help him and said he had a rifle at home. What? So McCoy drove this kid to his house to get the rifle. Nice. Only in Texas. Right. Then the guy named Alan Crum, who was a 40-year-old retired Air Force tail gunner. Thank you for your service, sir. Was a manager at the university bookstore. He was across the street. Um, he saw the 17-year-old newspaper boy being dragged and went to break up what he thought was a fight. Oh. Learning the boy had been shot and hearing more shots, he rerouted street traffic out of harm's way. Unable to make his way back to the store safely, he then made his way to the tower, where he offered to help the cops. Inside the tower, he accompanied the Department of Public Safety, um, and they went up the elevator. They provided Crum with a rifle. So only in Texas will the cop be like, here's a rifle for right. you. You don't got one? Help me out. Right, you don't got one? You need one. Uh, they, how is there not more police there? It was 66, I guess. There wasn't much violence. I don't know. So around noon, Officer Ray Martinez was off duty at home. He heard about the attacks on the news. He called the cop shop. He was instructed to go to the campus. Once there, he found all the other officers already doing what he was going to do, so he just went right up the tower. He assumed he would find the officers up there, but when he reached the 24th floor, or the 27th floor, he found only Cowan, Crum, and Day. So there's four people in the, in the tower at this point. Yeah. Officers attempting to reach the tower were forced to move slowly and take cover often, but a small group of officers began to make their way up the tower. And they got to the tower by the tunnels. So, mm -hmm. officers and some of the civilians provided suppressive fire from the ground with small weapons and some had hunting rifles. And they forced Whitman to stay low and fire through storm drains. Uh, so there's where sporadics came in. Gotcha. Um, a, 
police sharpshooter in a small plane was driven back by Whitman's fire, but he continued to circle at a distance so that he could distract Whitman and further limit his freedom to choose targets. So right. the Martinez, the Crumb, and the Day searched the 27th floor where they found MJ Gabauer. They moved him. Martinez um, darted up the steps to the observation deck, and Crumb insisted on covering him. Wow. Wait, wait, get this one. So here's the cool part. When Crumb, who's the retired Air Force mm-hmm. officer, insisted on covering him, Martinez deputized him first. Nice. Yes. So I know. I'm only like, in Texas. Only again. in Texas. And maybe Florida. I mean, this is. I mean, only in Texas in 1966. Right. So beneath the stairwell leading to the reception area, Martinez found Marguerite Lamport and Mark Gabauer. Mary Ga- Mary Gabauer and Mark Gabauer. Mark, Mary, and Mike. I can do this. Mike Gabauer let him know that he was in the observation deck. So he went up there. When he reached there, he told Crumb to remain at the door. McCoy and Dave reached the observation deck just a few minutes later. Um, then he realized, Day had realized that Martinez had gone up to the observation deck, so he sent McCoy up there too. At some point, Crumb accidentally fired his rifle. Oopsie. Oops, newly deputized, it happens. So at around 1.24 p.m., while Whitman was looking at the south for the source of the rifle shot, Martinez and McCoy rounded the northeastern corner. Martinez fired on Whitman with his revolver. Fucking missed him. Oh. And McCoy hit him twice with his shotgun. Martinez then took McCoy's shotgun from him, having emptied his own weapon. I don't know why, because apparently McCoy was a better shot. Right. <laughs> so Martinez did fire the final shot into Whitman at point blank range. Um, in the immediate aftermath, Martiz, Tony, Martinez was nearly shot himself by those on the ground who didn't yet realize Whitman was dead. Oh, shit. Yeah. So, the story of that day was newsworthy. I mean, right. the news had came. There was one reporter whose name was Neil Speltz. He was part-time at the news station because it was a new news station. Like, it had just been bought. Um, he was describing the events over the radio as they happened while crouching behind the news vehicle, which they called the Red Rover. Um, they were warning radio listeners not to go near the tower, that there's a sniper in the tower. And he continued the, in- the newscast the whole 96 minutes that this was going on. So found And that's a long damn time. Yeah, it took two reels of film. So following the shooting... The deck was closed from the, for the public until 1968. It was then closed again in 1975, following several suicides, and didn't reopen again until 99. Wow. Yeah. Now, in 1999, um, they did honor those whose lives were touched by the shooting tragedy and made a memorial. Mm-hmm. A bronze plaque was embedded on a rock that was at, the rock was added in 2007. A six-foot-tall granite memorial with the names of all the dead was constructed and put up in marking the 50th anniversary. That was in 2016. Um, The shooter said that he thinks he did it because he was having headaches and was seeing a psychiatrist for that. Yeah. So, let's talk about what the stressors were. While awaiting trial... 
decided he was going to start writing a diary. In it, he wrote about his daily life in the Marine Corps, about Wait, his interactions. I thought that it was this was waiting for his court martial from the Marines. Oh, I this was like, not <laughs> this was I'm before. Like, Wait a minute, point blank range. <laughs> yeah, no, no, this was the court martial, okay. not. For I mean, this. I have had some wine. Right, no, no, that's. I swear, that's. I told you I was gonna skip around like Marty fucking McF- McFly. Right. We're doing Back to the Future here. So when he was waiting for his court-martial, he started writing his diary. He was talking about being in the Marine Corps, talking about his wife, talking about how he was raised, wrote about his efforts to free himself from financial dependence on his father. So, um, when he went to UT, which was after the court-martial, he himself was a bill collector. So then he worked at a bank teller. Then he took a temporary job with freight lines, and he volunteered as a scout troop leader, which was very interesting. Friends said that he was extremely nice guy, but that he did hit his wife on two occasions. Um, Bastard. Right now, in his diary, he said that he was mortally afraid of being like his father, um, and that he lamented his actions and resolved to be a good husband and not as abusive like his dad was. So then he, obviously, we're going to bounce back to 66. He stabs his wife, stabs his mother, kills everybody. Um, But they still did an autopsy on this guy, just like he asked. Because he asked for it. Yes. They looked into his medical records and saw that he had visited several university doctors in the year before the shootings. They prescribed him various meds. Um, he was seen by a minimum of five doctors between the fall and winter of 65. At some time, he was prescribed Valium. Um, then he met Maurice Healy, which was a staff psychiatrist at UT, and that was in March of 66. Whitman referred to his visit with Healy as a final, in the final suicide, suicide note, writing, I talked with a doctor once, stop, leave it be, I'll fix it. I talked with a doctor once, bar broke her microphone. I and broke it. Yeah, now she keeps trying to mess with it, and she's going to make it worse, and I've got to fix it. Um, he did write in a suicide note, I talked with a doctor once for about two hours and tried to convey to him my fears, and that the, my fears that I felt um, becoming overwhelming, violent, impulsive. After one visit, I never saw the doctor again, and since then I've been fighting my mental turmoil alone and seemingly to no avail. Now, when they performed his autopsy, knowing that he had been prescribed drugs and was in possession of dexedrine at the time of his death, the toxicology was delayed because he had been embalmed. So after his body was brought to the funeral home on August 1st, they embalmed him. However, an autopsy had been done um, per the request of the suicide suicide notes on August 2nd. Um, so a day later, leave it, leave it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't. Barb. <laughs> so on August 7th, the autopsy was conducted at the funeral home. Urine and blood were removed for test, to test for traces of amphetamines or other substances. During the autopsy, they discovered a pecan size. Would you leave it? They discovered a pecan-sized brain tumor, which he labeled an astrocytoma, and which exhibited a small amount of necrosis. So this was dying. In his brain, yeah, that's not good. So they concluded... Necrotic 
But he Did concluded you? that the tumor had no effect mm. on Whitman's actions. I don't believe it. These findings were later revised by the Connolly Commission and stated, it is the opinion of the task force that the relationship between brain tumor and Charles Whitman's actions on the last day of his life cannot be established with clarity. Well, so basically, there's no way that that's not a factor. I mean, I'm not saying that I mean, that's a good tumor reason. might not be a factor, but there is definitely a mental health issue. Yes. Which, so, thankfully, to some extent, has started to get better, but it's so terrible. It is. I'm not kidding you. Like, of course, I, you know, I do medical billing, and we have to travel... I mean, one of my companies that I bill for is in the UP, and they have to take patients by ambulance to the closest appropriate facility, which is often hours away. Grand Rapids. Grand Rapids. Oh, Shaysa. We're talking three hours, four Detroit, hours. Detroit, Jackson. We have transported patients that far. Wow, that's insane. So that's my story, Barb. That is, that's jacked up. I mean, if, and if you haven't seen any of the video of the 1966 massacre, do. Look at it. It's on YouTube everywhere. It is amazing to see these poor kids running, hear the gunshots. It is a sight you don't get yeah. to see because, like I said at the beginning, it's generally in a classroom. Yeah, that's so, crazy. Yeah. So that is my story. Oh, no, I'm going. Um, we're going to take a short break because I'm going to fix Barb's mic. Before. It's fixed. Okay, because you said you want to kill me at the beginning of the show, and I'm, like, ready to stab you. <laughs> it's not fixed. It is fixed. No. You guys and are we're missing, back. You guys are missing me and Barb argue like three-year-old sisters. Stop touching it. I can touch it. I can touch it. Don't touch it. <laughs> I know my mic looks so good now. It's all straight. I was so OCD about this. Okay, so now I'm going to talk to you about the deadliest school massacre incident in Michigan history. Yeah, I, I know a little bit of it. Okay, bit I'm going to skip to. Okay, talk a minute. I have nothing to talk about. Okay, <laughs> Bath Township is 10 miles northeast of Lansing, Michigan. Uh, 1922 voters approved the start of Bath Consolidated School District that caused an increase in property taxes to pay for a new school. Mm -hmm. When it opened, the school had 236 students between 1st and 12th grade. Okay. What year did it open? 1920, 1922 is when they approved it. I'm not sure when it opened. Okay. Shut up. I thought I missed something. Okay. okay. Barbara and I don't like each other tonight. I know. We can English, <laughs> but we can't like. We can interact. <laughs> so, Andrew Kehoe. Oh, a Kehoe. He was born February 1st, 1872 in Tecumseh, Michigan. He was one of 13. Holy shit. You're right. Um, he went to high school locally, and then he went to Michigan State College, which is now can call now MSU, Michigan State University. He stuttered electrical. He stuttered electric. Studied. You said stuttered. <laughs> stuttered. <laughs> I. He studied 
electrical engineer. That's your guy. No, he just studies electrical. Electrical. Yeah, the one I was telling the story. And, and he's like, that's my guy, that's my guy. <laughs> yes. Um, ah, well, you lost me. Barb lost her place. His After graduation, he worked in, as an electrician in St. Louis, Missouri for several years before returning to Michigan. But he came back. He came back to his father's farm in Tecumseh. Oh. I wonder how many of those other 13 siblings were there. Uh, yeah, it doesn't really m- mention anything. Oh, by the way, I got all this from Wicked, Wicked, Wicked. Oh, yeah, I should have told my sources. I'll do that. I again. think that yours was Wiki, too, right? It was Wiki, KT, KBTC Television, basically, and YouTube. So then in 1912, at 40, he married Ellen, and she went by Nellie Christ. Seven years after getting married, they moved just outside of Bath, Michigan, to a farm. My friend's husband is the chief of police. In I'm Bath. sorry? My friend's husband is the chief of police in Bath. Hey. Currently. His neighbors described him as dependable. He volunteered to help out, did work around other farms. Was he a Boy Scout leader? No. Oh. But they also <laughs> described him as a very impatient person. Oh. Mm. To anybody who disagreed with him. Oh, that's me. No. No, 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 no. Not, <laughs> not to this extreme. Um, it was told by his neighbors that he shot and killed a dog that came into his yard oh, and annoyed him with his barking. Nope, nope, nope. Is that why you said um, I'm going to hate your guy? Yeah. Because I kind of do. Huh? I said because I kind of do. Oh, yeah. This is, this is exactly when I said, oh, you're going to hate my guy. Because he also, he had a horse that wasn't performing as... Don't shoot the horse. To the quality. No, he beat him to death. Oh, Jesus. I'll beat him to death. Oh, wait, he's already dead. He was known for his frugality, and he complained often of having to pay property taxes, which, um, you know how they voted to have the bad right. um, consolidated schools that raised the taxes because they had to pay for the new school. He didn't like it. Did he have kids? He did not have kids. Okay, because if he had kids, he'd pay for that shit. Um, he he complained a lot about having to pay property taxes slash school taxes is what he called them. And then he was elected to um, as a trustee on the school board in 1924. <laughs> right? The, for the taxes he didn't want to pay. Right. Okay. Uh, he served for three years, and he served as treasurer for one year. He constantly argued for lower taxes and also tried to get his property value lowered so that he could pay lower taxes. But still sit on the board. Right. In oh, June Jesus. of 1926, he was notified that his uncle, uncle's, uncle's widower, who held the mortgage on his farm, was starting foreclosure procedures. Sheriff Fox, who served the foreclosure notice, to Kehoe um, mentioned or stated that when he served him the paperwork he muttered quote if it hadn't been for that $300 school tax I might have paid up this mortgage if it hadn't been for them pesky kids I'd have gotten away with it <laughs> thank you for knowing that was Scooby Doo <laughs> okay so Kehoe had Kehoe had been appointed t- 
who temporarily served as the town clerk in 1925, but he did not get reelected. Okay. That was not okay with him. He basically felt like the town publicly rejected him. Turned their backs on him. Right. Um, he believed that after the defeat in the 1926 election, he, or people believed that after that non-re-election in 1926, he plotted a very evil revenge. He had free access to the school in the summer of 1926 because he was hired as a freelance electrician to do some repairs around the school. Um, And in mid-1926, he began buying a ton of pyrotol, an incendiary explosive device, substance okay and normally at that time farmers would buy that and they use that for like evacuation or burning debris okay november 26 he drove to lansing and bought two boxes of dynamite he he went to several different places several different stores several different times buying this pyro pyrotol and um dynamite because it wasn't unusual for farmers to buy that kind of stuff so he went you know he went around all over the place to get it not raising any concerns right or any red flags they must not have had tractor supply company and computer center he is right because now you gotta be 18 to buy he used dynamite so often on his farm that his neighbors um coined him the dynamite farmer oh wow (laughs) yeah in December, he bought a 30 cal Winchester bolt-action rifle. Again, not uncommon if you're a farmer. Right. Uh, he loaded the back seat of his truck, which I think is really odd that it honestly said he loaded the back seat of his truck. In 1926, did, back, did trucks have back seats? I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm wondering if they meant, like, the... Like the tailgate, the bed of the truck. The bed, yes. <laughs> I'm like, I'm hand gestures. Um, with metal debris to produce shrapnel in the event of an explosion. He even made sure his truck was trusty with a new set of tires. A neighbor of the school retor- reported much late night activity at the school in May of 1927. Kehoe's wife, Nellie, was very sick with the disease, and this is how they said it on... What disease? This is how they said it in Wikipedia. With a disease resembling tuberculosis. Oh, because they didn't have blood so, work and shit I mean, back I then. Think, I, I would think in 27... Yeah. Not would, chemical panels. And that probably also led to his financial woes, why he wasn't paying his mortgage, because she had a lot of hospital bills. She was released from St. Lawrence Hospital. Which May, is about a mile and a half from where we're at right, right now. May 16th of 27. Her charred body was discovered after the school massacre two days later in the back of the farm of the farm's chicken coop in a wheelbarrow. Ooh, were the chickens eating it? I don't know that there were any chickens. It didn't say. At 8.45 on May 18th, Kehoe detonated several firebombs in his home 
and all of the outbuildings of the farm. Hmm. Meanwhile, school started at 8.30 a.m. He set an alarm in the basement on the north wing of the school that set off the dynamite and, why can't I say this word, pyrotol, at 8.45. School started at 8.30, 8.45, June. Wow. The volunteers heading to the farm heard the explosion. They were, like, heading to the farm. For the fire. Heard the explosion there. Heard the f- explosion at the school. Went Which way, way did you go? Yeah. Um, 38 people were killed due Just to the explosion boom. on the north side, north wing of the school. Most, most of them are children. Of course. The north wing had collapsed, causing the edge of the roof to reach the ground. Oh. There was a pile of children, about five or six, and like wait, five or six children or five or six years old? Five or six children. Okay. But this is a quote from Wikipedia. There was a pile of children, about five or six, under the roof. Oh. A pile of children. Um, a man named Ellsworth volunteered to go out to his farm to get ropes heavy enough to lift the roof to free the bodies of the children. On his way out of town, he passed Kihu. Kiho. Kiho. Who was heading into town toward the school. Ellsworth reported that, quote, he grinned and waved his hand. When he grinned, I could see both rows of teeth. Oh, wow. I think my guy's a bigger asshole. Your guy's an asshole. He arrived at the school about a half an hour after the first explosion. Because you know he had to deal with his house. I think he just had to detonate all the shit at his house. Um, He called the superintendent over to his truck. A witness saw them fighting over a long gun right before Kehoe detonated the dynamite in his truck. Oh. Kehoe, the superintendent, a retired farmer, and an eight-year-old who'd survived the first blast in the North Wing were all killed. The eight-year-old, Cleo Clayton, was killed by the shrapnel that, like, from his truck. From the boom. The truck explosion sent shit everywhere. Damaging parked cars up to a half block away, starting fires on the roofs of the cars. Uh, Many more were injured, and postmaster Glenn O. Smith died en route to the hospital, having had lost his leg in the explosion of the truck. I'm adding 36 plus 5 or 6 is 41 plus 1 is 42. And the wife. I'm just looking at the school. So that's 42 kids out of 80. So we're looking at a 51% ratio. No, no, no. There was 236 kids in the school. Oh, oh, you were the class of 80. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's a lot. Okay. Well, and. During recovery, they found an additional 500 pounds of dynamite Holy on the shit. south wing. And what? And that never off? went off. Because uh, the was north it wing supposed to detonate. Well, yes, it failed to detonate. Um, it was also set to detonate at 8:45 a.m. Oh. Investigators think that the initial <laughs> blast on the north wing short-circuited. Um, well, if they were set for the same time, I, one shouldn't have gone off. Well, maybe so, it was just a few seconds off yeah. and it short-circuited. 
luckily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, not, so, I'm trying to negate that it, like, yeah. I'm not trying to be bummed it didn't go off. So, I mean, there's so many names to read, but would you like me to read the names of all the victims? That is complete. I thought that my victims deserved to be named. They okay. So, killed in the desert, or before the school bombing, Nellie Kehoe, age 52, she was the wife. Arnold, holy shit, do you want me to read it? it it's really little. Arnold Bowery, age 8. Henry Bergen, age 14. Herman Bergen, age 11. Emil Brumbunt, age 11. Robert Brumbunt, age 12. Lloyd Burnett, age 12. Russell Chapman, age 8. F. Robert Cochran, age 8. Ralph A. Cushman, age 7. Earl Ewing, age 11. I'm going to stop reading the ages. Catherine Foote, Marjorie Fritz, Carlisle Gazenhaver. Nice. George P. Hall Jr., Willa Hall, Iola Hart, oh, they lost Percy Hart, Vivian Hart, Blanche Hart, Gail Hart, Laverne Hart, Stanley Hart, Francis Hopner. Seven hearts. Well, some of them are with an E. Oh, okay. There's one, two, three with an out an E and four with an E. Cecile Hunter, Doris Johns, Thelma McDonald. I don't know what that name is. Ciarensa McFerrin, J. Emerson Madcoff, Emma Nichols, Richard Richardson. Really, Richard Richardson. Elsie Rob, Pauline Shirts, Hazel. Weatherby, Elizabeth Witchell, Lucille Witchin, or Lucille Witchell, my bad, Harold Woodman, George Zimmerman, Lloyd Zimmerman. Very sad. Um, and all of those, the, there's a 21-year-old, a 30-year-old, and the rest are like 8, 9, 10, 11. There was a 7. I was paying attention to well, the youngest age. All of them were children. Yeah. Yep. So killed by the truck bombing were... The superintendent. Cleo Clayton, Emery Hikes, Andrew Kehoe, which is the fucker, Nelson McFerrin, Glenn Smith. Died later of injuries, which we'll get to this. Beatrice Gibbs. Oh, and there is another one, because that isn't that. Okay, so as a memorial and in memory of all of these people, there's a statue called... And they said it's either girl with a cat or girl with a kitten in the Bath School School Museum in the middle school. In 1975, the school building was demolished and a park was developed on the land. The original cupola, do you know what a cupola is? Mm -mm. I looked it up because I didn't either. It's a small dome, especially a small dome on a drum on top of a larger dome adorning a roof. Looks kind of like a school bell type gotcha. okay. thing that survived the blasts, um, is in the center of the park. A Michigan State hum historical marker was installed in 1991, and in 2002, a bronze pl 
plaque was placed on a large stone. It has the names of all of the, those killed in the disaster. Makes me kind of feel like we should drive to Bath, take I a know, picture of that, and put it up on my Facebook page. Yes, let's do. So we could, and there's we some could really do that super cool before the escape room. Okay. I could go do it on my way. Yeah. We should do that. Um, there's some really cool things going on right here. Okay. Um, a foundation paid for the last two unmarked grave in 2008. They were, um, they were two brothers. The Zimmermans? Huh? Was that Zimmermans? No, it was, um, she's going through her notes, guys. I know, sorry, my bad, I was. Um, 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 um. Okay, we'll move on, but it was Anyways. two brothers. And, uh, in 2014, there was an, a man who was writing a book about this massacre. He paid for a gravestone for Richard Fritz, who died in 1928, which was after, long after this, but he died from the wounds that he suffered. Oh. And this author of this book paid, paid for, for his gravestone. I thought that was really That's fucking very cool. cool. There, um is a documentary that was released in 2011 with interviews from the people who survived that they started filming in 2004. And the documentary wasn't released until 2011, which I find a little bit interesting because I was talking to my daughter about this. Mm -hmm. And I was like, hey, look up, you know, and see if we can find anything. And it wasn't on, what's the one they always look? Um, YouTube, Netflix. Netflix. It wasn't on Netflix or YouTube, like she Googled it or whatever and couldn't find anything that was more than a few minutes long. Hmm. So I'm gonna have to look that up. Yeah, my cousin's son goes to Bath Middle School. I mean, I've been there because my kids play volleyball and. Yeah, he is a student there. I wonder, and I should ask Jay if they ever teach them about that. I would have to think that they did. Cause it's got a memorial there, they've gotta know. I don't know. So is that your story, Mark? Um, I just found Emil and Robert Bramont. Oh, okay. Were the two last unmarked graves. So sad. That a foundation. And it didn't say what foundation, it just said a foundation. Okay. So yeah, like how many is that? That's okay. a lot that's a shit ton of dead people. It was considering there's only 300 people in the well, whole school. Well, I thought there was, I think I counted 41. And at that time, 42. in Bath, there was only 300 adults. Wow. I mean, Bath still is tiny. So uh, it's not. It's, it's still pretty tiny. So, um, yeah. Uh, it's a kind I don't of even know where to go from that. It's, yes. The man definitely was off his rocker. He just, like, I don't know. I think both our guys were complete and utter dicks. Right. So. And actually, I have a little bit more compassion for your guy. Because he had a mental problem? Yeah. Oh, no, because he had a tumor. Yeah, but they can't prove that the tumor had anything yeah, to do with it. Yeah, how can I don't know. My mother, well, I guess she didn't have a brain tumor. So. So, we did a little pause. I counted the peeps. There was 45. 
Oh my gosh, I'm gonna do this. It was 45, but if you count Richard Fritz, who the author bought the gravestone right. for, who sustained injuries and died later, it's 46. Out of 300 adults and 286 kids, which makes it, you know, 586, 46, that's Almost a 10%, that's about 8% of the population. Effing chunk. Yes, it is. Sad to switch topics, but, and normally I go, and on that note, but it doesn't even feel right tonight. So, Barb, just tell me something good. Um, so, I got new glasses. Yes. I got new specs. I didn't have to take them off to do the podcast. I can see. And guess what? Sharp's still beautiful. Yay! She lies. She um, doesn't lie. She lies. It's not in my character to yeah. lie. Right. She's the one that just admitted her moral compass is not north. That doesn't mean I lie. It was just my morals. <laughs> see, that has nothing to do with morals. Yes. So. Shut your dirty whore mouth. And, um, oh, hi, slut. My bad. So, you might tell me something good. And it's going to sound really weird, but my mom came home this weekend. I didn't see. Yep, that's why I made sure to go get my mom. Oh! Um, so, my mother passed away in September. <coughs> she was cremated. I had a memorial ring. Well, I ended up getting a ring, a pendant, and earrings um, made for my mother. Um she came home on Saturday. Oh so my god, it's so beautiful. I feel much much more whole again. I don't know how to describe it, but oh mom's my god. home. So that a, this has your mom's ash yes. in the ring. Yes. Oh my god, I love it. Yeah, so we're ordering a few more. By few I mean four for people. <laughs> um seriously, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so that is my tell me something good for the week. Welcome home, Amy. Yeah. We've missed you. She's My mother was amazing. I mean, that's the best way I could ever describe her. I still talk about her all the time. I mean, it's only been five months. so. But at least it's at a point now where I can talk about her happily. Um, I want to talk about her more now than I did right. five months ago. Oh, so. yeah, that gets me. Yeah, it's great. So mama's home. That's my tell me something good. That's that is really awesome and beautiful. Yeah. And um what else can you do? Um what, what somebody's birthday's to, coming up. Were we supposed to do something else? Why do I feel like I'm missing something here? I don't know, but somebody's birthday's coming up. The bug's birthday. The child officially turns eighteen. I have done it, folks. I finished what? the race. Finished the race. She's gonna be an official adult. I did my job. Now, do I get to be friends? Like, what does that work? Oh, yeah. I gotta be friends? And can I kick her podcast house? room is coming along, folks. It's, I mean, that's all set up. Um, it's just getting it aesthetically pleasing at this point. So, I'm working on that. Um, yeah, on that note, I oh. think it's time. I know. Should we... Um, preview next week? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, Barb. Can you preview me what next I, week is? Um, chitter-chatter amongst yourself I, for half a second. I talk to myself a lot, but it's not that oh, exciting. Is it's next about week us. The, 
next week is, oh, that's what I was just looking at. It's on the wall. Witches. Witches? Right now I'm a bitch. I'm so it's about lover. you. I'm, oh, it's about you. You're a witch. I'm a bitch. I don't know. Like we were talking, me and my sister, when we we're planning our funerals and memorials and stuff. I told Andrea, you know that song that they like play to start the memorial, and it's always this really nice song. I want mine to be "Ding Dong the Witch is Dead." <laughs> Andrea's like, only if I can change the words to "Ding Dong the Bitch is Dead." I'm like, please. No, you know what? I am the sound. I am the memorial official sound girl yes. of memorials. So "Ding Dong the Witch is Dead." So, is all me but all you know what I'm gonna do? I'll be like. It'll be like, sing it like it's playing. Uh-huh. Ding sing dong, it. the witch is dead. Bitch. The wicked witch. Bitch. Witch. Bitch. Ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. That's what I'll do. <laughs> Just for you, my Bitch. love. Yeah, that's what I want. I'm Bitch. Like, I can't go out to a sweet song or anything super sappy, because that's, people be like, oh, that's not fucking sharp. Ding dong, the bitch is Bitch. Dead. They'd be like. Really? Really? Yeah, okay. I get it. (laughs) Although, I am like 700 years older than you, so you're going to have to be my official sound. You're two years older. I don't know how you learn to count. (laughs) 